0: to talk to you today about prayer. You could turn in Luke to uh, Luke 11, Luke 11. We're going to cover a bunch of scripture, Luke 11, 1 through 13, we're just going to walk our way through it. And my prayer is that you would not just be inspired by a message, but this would become a, a launching pad. Scripture would become a runway for you for your prayer life. I learned that when I pray the word of God, I'm praying the will of God, like I can't mess it up. <laughs> It's the will of God. If I don't know what to pray, I'm going to pray his word. And uh, so let's jump in. You know, as a kid, I'm one one of six. So I have three sisters and two brothers. I'm number five in the mix. So that means that many times you grow up wanting what someone else has. (laughs) Like if my older sibling got a toy, I needed to have that toy. If they got their license, I needed to have my license. You know, I needed to have a car. It was like I need what they have. And um, I talked yesterday a little bit about the poverty mindset. I definitely grew up with that mindset because when you have, you know, eight people living in a house with one bathroom, y- you covet even when you can have hot water and a shower. And so as a kid, it was like I need to have those clothes, those Jordans, the, you know, in sports. I was like, man, that guy's cross. I need to learn how to do that or, or, you know, football. I need to get my bench press or squat to where his is. Or I... It's so easy to deal with comparison and envy, isn't it? And, and you want what other people has. As you get older, it's kind of like, it'd be nice to have that anointing, that platform. Oh, it'd be nice to be able to speak another language and not need a translator. Like, there's things where you just say, it would be nice to have what they have. Can I tell you that when the disciples spent time with Jesus, they watched his life, it wasn't a, it would be nice to have what he has. They came to a point where they said, we must have, we need his prayer life. Because they had discovered the secret to everything Jesus was doing publicly was because of his prayer life privately. And we're going to unpack this a little bit. And I'm telling you, it is so <laughs> convicting for all of us, staff, faculty, myself. The 12 original followers of Jesus were watching him closely. His wisdom, his power, his miracles, the authority that he spoke with, the compassion that he moved through the crowds with, the peace that he lived with. And they were hungry to learn from him that the secret to his private life was fueled is what is the thing that his private life fueled his public impact. And so it's pretty obvious when you look at Jesus and you look at the disciples as they went through life, there was one not like the others. Right? He was so distinct from them. They watched him preach the Sermon on the Mount. He healed a man with a deformed hand all before Luke 11. He set a dangerous and demonized man free. He calmed a storm by speaking to it. Think about if you saw your pastor or your mentor speak to a visible storm. Like, I'm impressed when people can talk to their dog or their toddler and they obey. He is speaking to the wind, to the unseen, and he is speaking to the waves, to what we can see. How many of you know it's the unseen that affects the scene? He was speaking to principalities and natural conditions, and he just says, stop it, enough. And the storm ceases. They knew there was something different about Jesus, and they needed to have it. He raised a boy from the dead. He showed self-control when James and John, the sons of thunder, wanted to burn a city to the ground after they rejected Jesus. Oswald Chambers said this, prayer doesn't equip you for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. It's been said that when I work. I work. And we all need to work. We need to put our hands to the plow. When I work, I work. But when I pray, God works. Jesus lived this and modeled this long before Chambers ever said it. So for Jesus, he lived life in reverse from most of us. For Jesus, the greatest struggle, the greatest expenditure of energy was in his private prayer life. Where did he sweat drops of blood? In Gethsemane, in prayer. For, for Jesus, it was almost like his prayer life, his secret place, was running the marathon, and his public life was just walking up to get the medal. For Jesus, his secret place was like, I'm, I'm taking all my final exams, I'm taking all the courses, but now, as I go through my public life, I'm just walking up to get my diploma. He, he lived constantly out of the miraculous overflow of a well that he had created in his secret place in private life. It's amazing to me that we spend so much time and work and energy on all the public stuff, on all the tasks, on all the agendas, on all the things. And then we kind of dabble in the secret place and ask God to bless all that. Where Jesus predominantly focused on this, and then when he was in public, it was like he just was walking in the overflow of the supernatural. Why? Because Jesus knew how to tap into a life source. Come on, how many of you know? I mean, your phone, some of your phones may be a year too old. The battery's not last. You are never without a charger nearby. Some of you have them on your person. Some of you have external chargers. Some of you, like... Back in the day, traveling through airports where they didn't have enough plugs, it was the most frustrating thing because you couldn't find power for your phone. What, what if we treated our prayer life like our phone chargers? What if we were like, I, I can't be without a life? So I'm telling you, this was the secret to everything that Jesus did, and the disciples started to finally figure it out. What did he have that they needed to have? Let's pick up the story in Luke 11. And one of the things I want you to see as we go through this this chapter is that a prayer-filled life becomes a spirit-filled life. I don't know a Christian on the planet that doesn't want to live a spirit-filled life. Power, peace, joy, all of those, direction. But it's a prayer-filled life that becomes a spirit-filled life. And so Jesus says in Luke 11, verse 1, it says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. Say certain place. One of the greatest things that you might be able to get out of the week of prayer is having the Holy Spirit guide you to what is your certain place. Like where is that place that you go to where no one is around and you can meet with God? It could be a chair. It could be in your car. It could be somewhere in the dorms. It could be anywhere. Uh, We're all busy and we all need time to get away from each other and connect with God. Susanna Wesley, the, father, or the mother of John and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist movement, which, by the way, helped disciple over 60 million people. I, I think that was pretty, pretty powerful. Susanna Wesley, with her 19 children, say that with me, 19. My Lord. <laughs> How many of you know, as a mother of 19 kids, you have no private space? Jesus went to a certain space, she had no secret place. This is what she would do, no joke. She she was almost always in an apron, and she's taught each of her kids when you see mom throw her apron over her face, do not bother her. She learned to have a traveling secret place where she would throw her apron over her head and begin to connect with God and then go back to her work. Apparently, something was happening, there was a connection right what ha- where is do you have a certain place because it's a lot easier to have a certain time if you have a certain place we have intentionality in so many other areas of our lives but sometimes and listen sometimes you may get bored with a place and you got to s- switch it up and get creative but but what do you have a certain place it says jesus went to a certain place to pray and usually when you have a place to pray you have a time to pray um Jacob in Genesis 28, he's on the run from his brother Esau, and it says when he came to a certain place, he laid his head down on a rock. Can I tell you, your certain place doesn't have to be glamorous. His pillow was a rock. And it says that as he laid his head on that rock on on the run from his brother after stealing his birthright, it says the heavens opened and the angels were descending or ascending and descending. So he's got an open heaven over him as he's laying on this pillow of a rock. And then Jacob makes a statement. and He says, certainly this is a awesome place. What happens when your certain place becomes an awesome place? What, what is the difference? A rock for a pillow became an open heaven and an awesome place. God will meet you in, his, in your certain place with his presence and turn it into an awesome place. I have been in the junkiest of cars. I have been in coat closets. I have, I have met with God in so many unglamorous. Listen, you don't have to see angels. You don't have to have the heavens open. But I want to encourage you, get a certain place. Get to a place where people can't find you. Get to a place where your phone can't distract you. I mean, I, it, like our family has, has started this new liberating practice where we turn our phones off for 24 hours during the week. At first, it was terrifying, as if somehow the world can't function without you. And then it was the most liberating thing. Do you know why Google and these places make everyone put their laptops and cell phones in these little containers before they go into conference rooms? Your brain cannot freely think with all that connection and distraction. We are tethered to these devices. And they say that if you want to think creatively, turn your phone off and not just turn it off. Put it in another room. Put it in another part of your house, another part of your dorm. Just hide it from yourself. And get to that certain place, because God will turn. How many of you believe God can turn an ordinary space into a sacred space? He can turn a certain place into an awesome place. Amen? Come on, let me hear you through those masses. Amen? (laughs) One day, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, I just want to say that the hunger of one can benefit many. It so struck me recently. It says, one of the disciples. Ask the question. I'm so glad one of the disciples asked this question because this is how we got the Lord's prayer. This is how we got insight onto his secret place. How many of you know the hunger of one in a gathering can change things? The the hunger of one in a family can change. I'm telling you, the hunger of one. This one disciple said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray just as John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. I want to encourage you to be a learner and not the learned To say, teach me, is the posture of humility. How many of you know we all have room to grow in our prayer life? Teach, uh, you can't be taught something if you know everything. The disciples were far from perfect. But thank God they were not like the Pharisees. The disciples were flexible. The Pharisees were rigid. The disciples were curious. The, The Pharisees had black and white answers. The disciples saw Jesus full of grace. The Pharisees were full of the law. The disciples actually were full of humility. Teach us where the Pharisees were full of pride. They were wanting to learn. The Pharisees only wanted to teach. I want to challenge you to be a learner. I, don't, I, want, you to, I want to challenge you to be a lifelong learner. I love being around people in their 70s and 80s that are still curious. Still asking questions, still leaning into God. I'm telling it's like my favorite thing because if you've gone through 60, 70, 80 years of life, you are so weathered, you are you have character, you've been through some trial, and if you still have childlike curiosity, how amazing is that? Eric Hoffer once said, he said, learners will inherit the earth, while the learned will find themselves beautifully equipped. To lead in a world that no longer exists. Because if you, like the Pharisees, think you know it all, you won't be flexible, you won't be curious, and before you know it, the world is changing all around you. It's an ever-changing world, right? I, I love the humility of this question. Jesus, just teach us what we have. And I want to say, as you, as you connect with Jesus consistently in your prayer life, it will keep you flexible. It will keep you creative. It will keep you humble. If, you're, if your prayer life is stale, I believe you'll become stuck in your public influence, period. We see that from Jesus' life. So verse 2, he says to them, when you pray, say. Uh, I grew up in a non-denominational church, um, and I kind of thought scripted prayers were very dry and religious and not of the spirit. Um, I thought I was supposed to just pray my heart freely. Of course you can. But I have found that scripted prayers can be very powerful. Um, he's, he's literally saying, when you pray, say. You don't have to say those exact words, but use this outline of prayer. It's so amazing how economically Jesus used his words. If, if you asked the greatest theologians in the world to talk about prayer, we would have pages and pages. Here Jesus just gives us a few verses. When you pray, say this. Can I just say that if you don't know what to pray, just pray the script of scripture. Just, just pray his words. Use this as a pattern. When you pray, say. Use it as a powerful runway. I went through so much of my life just thinking it had to be just totally spontaneous. Now I'm like, man, Psalm 23 is amazing. Man, the Lord's Prayer is amazing. When everything around the world is shaking, when you anchor yourself to the Word of God, I'm telling you, it brings you peace in your prayer closet. He said to them, when you say pray, and here's the thing, Jesus is teaching us to ask honestly. He's teaching us to ask honestly. He said, our Father... How will it be or holy be your name and your kingdom come? Notice he says our father, not just my father. It's a family thing. When you start praying, one of the best things about prayer and about the Lord's prayer is talk to him about him. Before I talk to him about them, I have to talk to him about him. He says our father. Talk to the father about the father. Not because he forgets who he is, but because we need to be reminded of who he is. Are you with me? Our father, holy, set apart, totally different is your name. You know, in prayer, when you talk to him about him, you let God be God again in your life. I just want to let God be God, uppercase G. Like, not the image I've made him into, not the version my circumstances have whittled him down to. Jesus says, let God be God when you pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy, hallowed is your name. And he's saying, listen, I want you to come. You're talking to your Father. Be honest with him. Come honestly. Don't have pretense. Don't pretend. Don't act. C.S. Lewis said it so well. He says, when you come to your Father in prayer, don't bring to him what should be in you. Bring to him what's really in you. You gotta love C.S. Lewis. Timeless. Don't bring. You don't have to pretend whatsoever. You you can just come to God and be honest. Don't pull your best impersonation. I love the, (laughs) I love the clip from Meet the Parents where Adam Sandler's trying to pray and he says uh, trying to impress Lord. You know, oh dear Lord of hosts, thank you for the bountiful smorgasbord so aptly laying at this table. Three things we pray, day. By day. Like, (laughs) you don't have to impress him. (laughs) He knows you. He wants you to come honestly. You're talking to family. You're talking to your father. Do you realize in the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, only seven times the phrase father is used in this context of speaking to God? You have a privilege that Moses only caught a glimpse of. You have access to the secret place that Abraham didn't understand. Enoch walked with God and didn't even have the full concept of God as a father the way we do because of Jesus. In the New Testament, contrast seven times Old Testament. In the New Testament, over 275 times, Jesus and the gospel writers say, talk to your father. You have a father. You're not an orphan. You're not alone. You're not abandoned. He hears you. You have a family connection. Our father. I love that. So get real with him. Tell him how you really feel. God, they always say you're on time, but I think you're late. (laughs) Uh, I didn't think I would be single this long. I didn't think I would be in debt this long. I didn't think I would not have clarity on where I'm going in ministry. Jesus, I'm really frustrated right now. Can I just say that dishonesty is distracting? Not to God. He knows what's going on in my heart. It's distracting to you. It's distracting to us. Dishonesty is so distracting because it's running around in your mind and while you're trying to jump through whatever hoops you think you have to jump through, God's like, yeah, 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 talk to me about that thing in your heart. I'm your father. You could talk to me. Our father who art in heaven. I want to just say during this week of prayer, I know that I try to do this at Elam. I, w- I would try to like pray for the missionaries in Cambodia and do all of these great things. But I've learned that. Sometimes you've got to bring your wants before someone else's needs. Because if you're really honest, what's on the tip of your heart is your stuff. If I don't pray my stuff, then I can't pray with endurance and with accuracy for other people's stuff. Are you with me? Like if you would begin to pray about your wants, you can then pray so powerfully about someone else's needs. Come to your Father, come to Him. Honestly, what kind of stress and anxiety, what kind of weight have you been carrying that you just need to give to God? You know, when you hear from James Harrington, he's, he's the founder of the Uganda Water Project, a friend of mine, great guy. He was on a, a, a trip to Haiti bringing relief after an earthquake, and he had to go up this, this mountainside, and he had to get all these water containers and filters and different things up the, up the mountainside And they didn't know how to do it. And so they were looking to hire some people with mules, but they didn't have any mules available. They were all being used. So they had to use sheep. What did we learn about sheep yesterday? (laughs) Not only are sheep dumb, they are terrible, burden-bearing animals. (laughs) He said, Josh, it was awful. We tied this stuff to the sheep. They finally meandered their way up to the top of the mountainside. But he said, they couldn't carry heavy weight. It was like almost cruel putting it on these sheep sheep were not made to bear burdens what is something that this week you have got to lay before the feet of your father jesus said when you pray i want you to pray our father because listen the prayer-filled life becomes a spirit-filled life jesus said ask honestly the next thing he said is i want you to ask expectantly our father our father holy is your name Your kingdom comes, so Father is the person of God. Kingdom is the program or the agenda of God. I want to pray about those things. In fact, many times the litmus test for my prayer is this. If it's not up there, it probably shouldn't be down here. Pretty basic, but he literally said, on earth as it is in heaven. So when my mom is sick or this person is, I just say, all right, the litmus test for me is, if it's not up there, it probably shouldn't be down here. We're going to pray against it. And if God does it, we celebrate. And if he doesn't, we we worship him in the mystery. Are you with me? It's a very simple but powerful litmus test. He said, I want up there to come down here. So I have to say to myself, if it's not up there, then it probably shouldn't be down here. I'm going to contend against it. Then watch this. He says, give us each day our daily bread. It seems a little redundant. He said, why does he have to say, give us each day our daily bread? You know, if you, if you, if you come from an under-resourced family, you may have WIC checks or food stamps or different things. And many times the government will say, yeah, come talk to me once a month. I'll give you what you need for the month, then come on back. Or come every two weeks, and, and then I'll, I'll give you what you need. You know, Jesus doesn't want a once-a-month relationship with us. He doesn't want an every-couple-week relationship with us. He says, I want you to talk to me daily about your needs. Give us each day our daily bread. This is like the manna outside the camp. This is like every day I want. And, and, and what it is, the consistency breeds intimacy. He wants to talk to you every day about what's on your heart and your mind. In a certain place, when you're on the go, when you're busy, he just, he wants it to be daily. I said last night in Psalm 5, David said, in the morning, God, I start out my day, and I lay my request before you, and I wait in expectation throughout the day to see what you will do. Expectation is the womb of the miraculous. God, many times, doesn't just respond to need. He responds to expectation. It doesn't sound warm and fuzzy, but I'm telling you, it's biblical. Expectation is so powerful, and, and I just believe that I used to think, I told you last night, I used to think prayer was so boring. Now I've realized that a life without expectation is boring. Expectation adds so much color to your day. Um, I found that if I'll begin to pray about anything, I find myself praying about everything. Like if you would just start, like, I just pray about everything. And, and if, if you will start praying for the small things, it will give you faith for the big things. And so I've just decided to have expectation. And uh, Ann and I, we, were go- we wanted to go away for our 20th anniversary. COVID shut the world down. And I had some reservations for an Airbnb on a mountain top in Montana. Amazing. Like every wall was a window. It was, talk about a certain place. I could worship Jesus in that place. It was incredible. But the world shut down. But I just kept feeling in my spirit, I'm not going to cancel our reservations. And so now it's June of 2020. And I'm praying, I'm praying. I'm watching daily the governor's report in Montana. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, right, we shouldn't cancel our plane tickets. We shouldn't cancel our Airbnb. I just, let's just keep waiting. Let's keep. Seven days before we were supposed to get there, the governor opens the state. I'm like, praise God. Only problem is the national parks are still closed. I'm telling you, listen, the day we land in Montana, They make an announcement that they opened up Glacier National Park and Yellowstone Park. So we wanted to go see the parks, right? And so we're going through Yellowstone. I love nature, love animals, all that stuff. And it was incredible. Saw moose, saw up close, saw all kinds of animals, crazy, bison, traffic jams. And because COVID had shut the world down, no one was in the park, We're driving through Yellowstone, and people are like, yeah, man, traffic jams. I'm like, traffic jams? The animals are looking at us like, what are these humans doing here? It was incredible. But as we were leaving the park, our GPS said that we had only about 1.6 miles before we were going to be leaving the park. And I just prayed out loud with my wife in the car. I just said, God, thank you for this incredible trip, but you know that I wanted to see at least a bear. I saw every animal on my list, but I did not see a bear. I said, we have 1.6 miles according to ways before I'm out of this park. Could you please bring a bear across our path? I am not joking. Within that 1.6 miles, there was a black bear on the side of the road. I pulled the car over so fast, whipped out my phone to get a video for our boys. I'm like going in the woods after this black bear expectation. Pray. If you pray, what matters if I see a bear in Yellowstone, but I tell you what, it gives me faith that God hears my prayers when I've got to talk about cancer, and I've got to talk about national issues, and I've got to pray for big things. If you'll pray expectantly for the small things, it gives you renewed faith for the big things. Come on, somebody. If you'll begin to pray about anything, you'll find yourself praying about everything. Jesus said, give us Today, our daily bread, I'm telling you, if it matters to you, it matters to God. Nothing matters more in the universe than what's happening in the lives of his kids. Nothing. He's the person of God. He's got the program and agenda of God, but it works through our lives. He said, give us today. Mark Batterson, I love this. He said, one of the greatest tragedies in life is is the prayers that go unanswered because they go unasked. How many prayers is God waiting to open up and answer over my life, but I haven't asked yet? Ephesians 3 says that God is able to do beyond what I could ask, think, or even imagine. And then it slips in this phrase, according to. According to means to measure out. I wonder if I'm not seeing the power of God in my life because I'm not measuring out the immeasurable power of God through my prayers. Am I measuring out the power of God over this situation, over this area, right? Give us the, pray with expectancy. I got got to tell you just one more because this really touched my heart. I grew up in Connecticut and it was hostile territory with uh, Red Sox and Yankees fans. I mean, like, really hostile. Like, you don't go to the game wearing the opposing jersey unless you know you're going to get a shower of uh, a liquid beverage that doesn't smell good when you wear it, and people are saying obscene profanities to you that you've never met. So I was raised a Yankees fan. My grandfather grew up in the Mickey Mantle era. I love baseball, and so growing up, my youngest son really fell in love with baseball, became an incredible athlete, and he's, he's phenomenal, but it started out as a joke, and then it started to become real. Where he was like, Dad, I'm a Red Sox fan. And I'm like, what is happening with my life? Honestly, I went through a little crisis. I'm like, if I can't shape and mold and disciple my son into a Yankees fan, you call yourself a leader? You coach leaders? Your son is an infidel. Your son is like rooting for the enemy in your own house. And... I was, some, I don't even know how, I went into his room, I saw a Red Sox, I said, what the heck is this? I'm like, get that out of our house. So I, so I just started to pray, I'm not even joking, I used some of my intercession time in a certain place. Why? I wanted to bond with my son over something close to my heart, right? And so I began to pray, I said, Jesus, my son, Jesus, Jesse needs to become a Yankees fan I can't coerce him. I, I can't even influence him. Uh, clearly, I'm not a leader, but I need you to do something, right? And so I was, I was preaching at a church in New Jersey, and so I looked at the schedule, and I found out the Yankees were home, and they were playing the Red Sox. Oh, my son's coming on this ministry trip. So I said, Jesse, pack your bags. You're coming with Dad. We're going on a trip. And I told him, and we're going to go to Yankee Stadium. And he started to pack his Red Sox gear. I was like, listen, if you wear that in the Bronx... Your dad tries to take care of himself, I'm pretty fit, I'm going to get messed up. If you wear that, they're going to beat me up. <laughs> and so, anyways, we go there, and I, I kid you not, I am whining and dining my son. Anything he wants to eat, he's got it. He is, he is eating everything you can. we walk past anything, ice cream, he's got it, large soda, he's got it. I mean, I'm like, we're barely watching the game, this kid's going to the bathroom, he's in, and so he's got his face stuffed with a pretzel, and I'm, and I'm in the middle of the game, and I kid you not, I sense the Holy Spirit prompt me to look up and check out what's happening on the field, because Jesse said to me when we were walking into the stadium, hey, dad, do you think Aaron Judge will hit a home run today? And I said, yes, he will. And then I started praying fervently. (laughs) Jesus, if he has a moment, I'm telling you, I think Jesse will turn his heart. And you think I'm exaggerating. I am dead serious. I am praying. I'm asking. And it's like all of a sudden, there's just a moment. And I knew before the moment happened, something was about to happen. And Jesse's stuffing his face with with a huge pretzel. I said, Jesse, Jesse, look, 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 look. I saw the count. I saw Aaron Judge up at the plate. I pulled out my phone. The next pitch, he hits a two-run homer to right field out of the stadium. The whole place goes crazy, and the Yankees beat the Red Sox, and my son came home into the kingdom. <laughs> now, you may hate the Yankees. That's, that's fine. But if it matters to you, it matters to God. God. I mean, God was solving problems in Syria, God was doing things in D.C., and God was absolutely with me in that stadium, bonding me with my son. Give us each day our daily I believe God wants you to pray with expectation over the big things. What are the requests that you need to bring to him this week? Jesus wants us to pray honestly, expectantly. Here's the next one. He wants us to ask humbly. Verse 4 says, and Father, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. God, I thank you for this new morning, and with this new morning comes new mercy. Do you know what's crazy? And we have to be careful not to become this. Self-righteous people rarely are able to give forgiveness to others because they rarely recognize their need for it in their own lives. I realized before the Lord's Prayer became so real to me how long I would go sometimes without confessing my sin. It, it would just be like, oh, my gosh, when's the last time I've, like, actually confessed this, repented of this? And Jesus says, I want you to come to me daily for bread, and I want you to come daily for forgiveness. Like, keep a short account. If you ask God to forgive you daily, guess what that will do? It will cause you to be more gracious to other people. Because those who are forgiven also forgive. You could get blood out of a rock more than you could get forgiveness out of a self-righteous person. I do not want to become rigid and crusty and judgmental and non-grace giving. I'm telling you, when you ask God to forgive you daily and you meet with him regularly... It gives you a a more gracious disposition towards other people. Amen? Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those. And then he says, and lead us not into temptation. God, help me to avoid those sinful areas that trip me up. I don't want to say that. I don't want to consume that. I don't want to see that. What are the areas of temptation in your life? And again, at first, you've got to be honest to God. We, We talk about temptation like we hate it. We love temptation. Tweet that. (laughs) Listen, when when your heart starts beating and your mind starts fantasizing and you're you're thinking about things that you think you could have or should have or need right now, I mean, the, the fact is your flesh always craves those things. And Satan's lies will write checks that will bounce every time you try to cash it. Because they're connected to to a devious nature. When you pray, lead us not into temptation, what you're saying is, God, you've put a divine nature inside of me. My sinful nature was crucified and nailed to the cross. Now I have a new nature. Before I used to sin because I had to. Now I sin because I choose to and because I want to. But God, if you would help lead me not into temptation, what is he doing? He's reminding you that behind every temptation is the tempter. The evil one who wants to destroy your life. I have found, let's be real, I have found that it's hard to fight what God calls me to flee. He's not going to lead you into temptation. In fact, he's always going to give you a way out of temptation. Every single time. But you've got to be careful not to fuel and feed your temptations by what you watch and what you talk about. I'm telling you, listen, if you struggle with gossip... Be careful who you talk with. Remove yourself from that situation. If gossip is comfortable around you, you have to look in the mirror and ask, "Why is this so? Why do they feel comfortable coming and talking like that around me?" Right? When with what you watch. You know it's so funny, you try to watch Netflix or Amazon Prime. You spend 45 minutes looking for something to watch and then you're like, "All right, it's time for bed. I'm tired." <laughs> Or you get addicted and you go down the rabbit hole with whatever show you're watching and you begin to give yourself license because it's just entertainment. But that entertainment fuels temptation. So God is not leading you to temptation, but you're like, I want to live on the altar. I want to be a fragrant offering to God. But, man, I don't know. this. I just, maybe, this whole, maybe this week the Holy Spirit wants to help you trim away some choices on social media and entertainment. Only you really know what that is. But Jesus said, I want you to pray regularly. Lead me not into temptation. Are you with me? Jesus wants you to pray humbly, and he wants us to ask boldly. The passage goes on to say this. Then Jesus said to them, he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And then he immediately says, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, hey, friend, Lend me three loaves of bread. Like, hit me up with those Hot Pockets in your freezer. Like, a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside says, don't bother me. The door's already locked, and my children and I are in bed. Modern-day example, the kids are already in bed. My wife and I are watching Netflix. I can't get up and give you anything. Verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship... Yet because of your shameless audacity, your shameless persistence, he will surely give you, get up and give you as much as you need. Tonight we're going to talk about persistence in prayer. We're going to talk about what happens when you pray and it doesn't look like anything's happening. He, God, I think he is so moved by your shameless audacity. Ask him for big things. <laughs> a friend of mine surprised me. I got a package in the mail and it was a brand new... Fourth or fifth generation, I'm not sure, Apple Watch. And I'm not even that techie, right? Um, And I don't really love all the notifications and, like, constant stress that can sometimes come from wearing an Apple Watch. But my son, the moment I opened up the box, he was like, oh, that's amazing. First of all, it's nice to have good friends. You know, it's nice to have friends that just surprise you with things that you didn't even ask for. But my son, I have barely opened this, I don't know, $400 watch out of the box and he's like, hey dad, you don't really like that stuff. Can I have it? <laughs> Within the thing being three minutes in the house, I've be- before I even knew what was in the package, he knew what was in the package. He's like, hey dad, hey dad, you don't really like those things. Can I have it? Could we read the card? Could we figure out where it's come from? Amazing. But you know what? I had to laugh to myself. I loved his audacity. I loved him asking. Why? Because when you ask big, you're appealing to the generous nature of your father. If he stops asking, that's when I'm going to get worried. Jesus wants us to be bold. Charles Finney, you hear his name a lot around here. 1831, Rochester, New York. Greatest documented revival we have in U.S. history. This campus was purchased in 1832 by the Genesee Wesleyan Seminary in response to that move of God because there needed to be a training center for pastors and missionaries to go around the world and to steward this revival. And you've read the stories, hopefully, bars were shut down. In a short window of time, 10,000 people gave their lives to Christ. That's a high ratio for the city. Rochester at the time was the second fastest growing city in the country next to Philadelphia. There was amazing things happening in the city. Charles Finney said this about asking boldly. He said, when God has specifically promised something in his word, we're praying the will of God and the word of God. When God has specifically promised a thing in scripture, we are bound to believe that we shall receive it if we pray for it. You have no right to put in if and say, Lord, if it be thy will. This is to insult God. He says, to put an if in God's promise when God has put none there is tantamount to charging God with being insincere. What a challenge. What's amazing about Charles Finney, you want to talk about asking boldly. Charles Finney retired and stopped doing revivals, not because he was too old and didn't have any energy anymore. He actually stopped doing revivals. If you read through his memoirs and the books... He said because his intercessor, Daniel Nash, went home to be with the Lord. Daniel Nash, his cemetery is in way upstate New York, and on it, it says, Daniel Nash, a man of prayer. See, people know Charles Finney's name, but, they, but heaven knows Daniel Nash. Daniel Nash would come to any place Charles Finney was going one to two weeks beforehand, would rent a room in that city... With nothing, no needs, he would fast and pray and lay on the floor and cry out to God for the souls of that region. And Finney knew because of what Daniel did, he could preach and proclaim the gospel and see supernatural results. Why? Because the marathon has already won. Daniel ran the marathon and Charles went up and got the medal. There was a connection there. Jesus happened to do it himself. These two were a tandem pair. So powerful. Here's what I want to say. When you ask, ask boldly. Prayer is not conquering the reluctance of God. it's taking hold of His willingness. He's willing. He's able. Prayer, prayer is where our neediness meets God's willingness. How many of you are needy? For something we always have need. You will always have needs. Prayer is our neediness meeting the willingness of God. And lastly, I'm going to ask the the keys to come on up and play with me. Jesus said to ask boldly, and lastly, he said to ask continuously. Verse 9. So I say to you, ask. And in the Greek, it means to keep on asking. And it will be given to you. This is Jesus now. This is not Joel Osteen trying to make you feel good. This is Jesus, the Son of God. God in the flesh. No problem with Joel Osteen just saying. This is not Jesus just trying to encourage you, pump you up, give you some hype. This is biblical hope. I, I say to you, I say to you, Jesus says to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks and keep on asking receives, and those who seek and keeps on seeking will find. And to those who knock and keep on knocking, the door will be open. Students, I just want to challenge you. Don't ever let your expectation expire. There's always something fresh daily that the kingdom of God wants to do and usher in through your life. It could be through a word, a conversation, a prayer. I believe prayer, Jesus says pray continuously. Keep asking. I believe prayer has affected our lives far more than any of us really know. Parents may have prayed for you. Grandparents may have prayed for you. Listen, strangers have prayed for you that you will not even meet till heaven. I was talking to one of the greatest prayer warriors I've ever met, Dick Dreyer. How many of you have ever met Dick Dreyer? Dick, that man, that man knows how to pray. We were flying on a trip to China to minister to the persecuted church We're on a 13-hour flight from Chicago to Beijing. I'm scrolling through to see what movie can distract me for 13 hours and just like, gosh, this is so long. What is is Pastor Dick doing? He's sitting next to me with his Bible open and the Quran, and he's just sitting there praying. (laughs) For hours. I look over. I fall asleep watching something. I I look at Pastor Dick. He's muttering something in his sleep. He's talking to Jesus, and I'm like, day and night, this guy, day and night. So we're talking one time, and I'm telling him my testimony. I said, you know, I was really on fire for God at a young age, and I was deeply touched by the Spirit of God in Toronto when God poured out His His blessing in eighth grade. And for several years, I, I began to lead my friends to Christ and disciple them, but probably my junior and senior year, I had one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and I was just... I wanted to serve God. I planned to serve God. I just wanted to check out what the world had for me first, thinking that I was maybe missing out on something. And I was supposed to come to Elam, and I deferred it. I said, I'm going to take a year and just work. I'll get myself a nice, reliable car, you know, that whole thing. I'm going to make some money, then maybe. And it was September of 1999, the fall after I had graduated. All my friends had gone off to college And I was driving a teal Toyota Tacoma pickup truck all across New England delivering car parts to dealerships. But that truck that was a certain place became an awesome place because I began to play some worship music and God began to draw my heart back. And then all of a sudden, one day, I'm driving across this bridge in in Massachusetts and I am so overcome by the presence of God, I can't even drive. I am shaking, I am weeping, I pull over to the side of the road and I just begin to repent. I say, Jesus, you could have my life. And this fact, this is why I said, I said, God, you, I know you honor those who honor you, but I choose to honor you not in most areas of my life, but every area. God, I give my life to you. And at 18, I just surrendered myself on the side of the road again. And that was in September and January. I was at Elam. Came as a midtermer and walked into this intimidating week of prayer with freezing wind. I said, Oh, dear God. Pastor Dick said this to me. He said, Josh, what you don't know is the area of Massachusetts that you were driving through was where five young men in 1805 decided to have a prayer meeting. They were hungry for God. They wanted a move of God, and it was at Williams College, because that's right where I was driving by. He said, and they began to pray. They met out in this field, but it began to thunderstorm terribly and rain, so they went into this barn to this haystack. And these five young adult men began to cry out for God to grab those in their generation for the purpose of God, that God would bring them into the kingdom to the fullness of their calling, and they began to pray. It's become known as the haystack revival because those five students that were praying for revival ended up sending 5,000 missionaries to 34 different countries. And it started with a prayer meeting. Pastor Dick said to me, he said, Josh, your life was grabbed by one of those prayers. He said, they're in heaven, but prayers have no shelf life. They never expire. I tell you what, the fear of God came over me. I said, I... I what? They were praying for a generation to be raised up of revivalists and missionaries. Here I am just driving through. I'm backslidden. I don't know if I want to fully serve God. And those haystack revivalist prayers grabbed me and pulled me back into the center of God's will and conviction. How many of you know prayers have affected your life more than you know? Jesus said, I want you to pray, and I want you to pray honestly and boldly and consistently. Would you stand to your feet? I want to pray for us. I'm going to ask the whole worship team to come. I just believe that just about every fresh thing God wants to do in your life is through the invitation of prayer. The disciples said, we have got to get what He has. You have no idea how convicting this is for me because I spend so much time working out here. And over here, this is growing and developing, but it certainly is not big as this. For Jesus, it was clearly lopsided. So much invested in prayer, so he walked in so much.